0: Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We've got a new way of looking at history on the podcast today. A new transdisciplinary field has emerged called Cleo Dynamics. Imagine, imagine just being a founder of a transdisciplinary field, let alone calling it something as cool as Cleo Dynamics. Cleo, like it, good word. It reminds me of the old Athenian general, not a big fan of his, but it's a strong, It's connects a strong word, and then Dynamics can't go wrong. Every sci-fi story has got a company with dynamic. In the name of the evil corporation. So, Clio Dynamics, strong. And Professor Peter Turchin is the founder of that new transdisciplinary field. He's published lots of books, and Dr. Dan Hoyer works with him. The two of them are harvesting data. Of course, what else is anyone doing in the world? We're harvesting data. Big data about the past. Every single piece of data they can find, they're scraping. And they're seeing if they can then tell new stories about the civilizations of the past. Big data has transformed every other field. So can it transform history? Well, see if you're convinced. Have a listen to this podcast in which I interview both of them. I'm excited that many of you fed back positively about the, the live tour. It's going to be fun. Next autumn, next fall. Uh, it's sadly just the UK at the moment. But we'll see. We're going to be going to lots of big cities. We're going to be talking to wonderful historians there, recording those interviews for the podcast, watching some video, going on little adventures in each of those cities, and then learning about the history of the cities themselves. So please go and check that out. Tickets on sale Friday. It's going to be fun. And if you want to top up your Christmas present giving, go to the History Hit Shop. You can buy your comedy knitted knight's helmet or your gigantic poster of the Roman Empire at its peak. I mean, as I'm saying those things, it just seems too good to be true. What more do you need? As the high street collapses, history here steps up. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy this interview with Prof Turchin and Dr. Dan Hoyer. Dan and Peter, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having
0: us.
2: Glad
1: to be here.
0: Now, you guys, what are you doing with your statistics and your data? Because... I've been reading history books for a while, and everyone has a few tables in them, a few maps. Yeah, everyone tries to work out how many soldiers were garrisoning Britannia during the age of the Roman Empire. Like, what is different about what you guys do?
1: To answer your first question, there's kind of nothing we aren't doing with our data. We take a very wide net approach. It's really not that different than traditional history. I mean, there's a ton, as you say, of quantification. There's adding things. There's counting things. There's a lot of numbers in even traditional history. I would say that really what we're doing that's different is just kind of the scale of the questions that we're asking. So we're not asking about what was the number of hordes in the Roman Empire. We're asking, oh, can we use hordes from all over the world or all over Eurasia to indicate and sort of give us a measurement of the level of conflict over like a thousand year period. We're not doing anything different. It's just kind of the questions are a little bit bigger, I would say.
2: Yeah, coin hordes is a very good example because it allows us to quantify the amount of violence that occurs in societies. Just think about it. People put coin hoards down for safekeeping during the times of trouble. And then if something horrible happens to them, they get killed or maybe driven into exile or enslaved. Then the coin hoard is left in the ground. And so you have these deposits through the history which tell us what were the violent times and which times were peaceful times when you don't find many hoards. So this is a very good use of what you call proxy. It's mm-hmm. something that you want to get at but we uh, lack direct uh, quantitative measurements of, so we use indirect indicators. And so coin hoards, wherever any societies that had coins, they have coin hoards, so we can compare them not only through time, how violent or peaceful they have been, but also across uh, different nations, across different countries.
0: Do you set out to find some data on coin hoards here? Or do you just scrape data wherever you find it? Like if you come across something with a nice table about the price of grain in the fifth century, are you like, oh, we'll have that?
1: A little bit, but mostly we're sort of theory driven. And so normally we set out with the question first. And so we'll want to know, for example, what is it that exactly comprises what we would call social complexity? So what makes, you know, these large, complex, even ancient societies what binds them together, what are the common elements they have that are shared across all of these places over the world. And so we'll have theories that try to explain, oh, well, it's the rise of population, or it's the sort of administrative hierarchy that's involved, that's sort of driving it. And there's different theories that point out like very specific factors that are involved. And we'll just add those up. We'll sort of try to find all the theories that have been proposed and just number all the different factors that have been proposed as being really important. And we'll say, okay, well, let's find data on all of those factors and see which one in fact holds out to be the most significant. And so it's really those factors that are theory driven that then informs us. So we have theories of, you know, volatility is an important measure. And so, okay, well, how are we actually gonna get that? And as Peter says, that leads us to understand from various work that coin hordes can be a good proxy of that. So then we go out and say, okay, let's find all the coin hordes we can and count those up.
2: Yeah, maybe it would be worthwhile to step back and talk about the use of general theories in history. Do you think that's a good idea? Because the majority of historians don't really care about general history, and many of them think that they are impossible because human societies are so different from place to place and from time to time. But if you think about it, uh, without denying the huge diversity of human societies, surely there are some common features of them. Just think about Mm -hmm. it. Agriculture was invented independently all, all over the world. Societies increased in scale all over the world. They became centralized, acquired rulers and elites, acquired information systems, writing and things like that. If you think about a weird, bizarre, violent ritual like human sacrifice, that has been also independently invented all over the world. So surely there are some common features. And that's what we who work in this new historical social science called Cleodynamics. Dynamics, that's what we are trying to get at. They're trying to understand why human sacrifice first arises and then tends to fade away. Why do human societies scale up? What is the role of different factors? And so here I come to what Dan was talking about. So let's say, for example, why did human societies increase in scale, in size, by orders of magnitude, from hundreds to millions, tens of millions, and so on and so forth. And so there is a variety of theories, and historians themselves have proposed many of them. And they are basically opposite explanations. So our job is to use the historical data that historians, multitudes of historians have collected to empirically test those theories and find out which ones actually are closer to the truth and which ones don't really explain the data very well. So that's the major goal of this new discipline.
0: What do you regard as your biggest successes? What are the things that you like to drive old-fashioned historians crazy by going, we think we've crunched the data and we think this bit of received wisdom might be wrong. Come on,
1: tell me, boast. Ooh, that's a good, I'll, I'll let Peter go in for some of those. I mean, to me, you know, again, the social complexity work that we did, again, trying to um, understand what are the main drivers of this, this scaling up, this orders of magnitude scaling up, finding that it is actually much more uniform across time and space than even we expected. That generally, wherever you're looking, if it's, you know, in, in East Asia or in West Africa or Europe or even North America, the way that these societies tend to grow when they sort of scale up in size and population and then get these administrative hierarchies and all the various things that Peter was talking about, they all tend to happen in a pretty common and similar way across the board. Which to me, again, you know, as an historian, my background is fairly traditional historical research, that shocked me. Like, that's not the story we tell ourselves. And so I found that very surprising. And I really annoy my classical friends who are you know, Roman historians with, oh yeah, Rome's not that special. It's not that unique. Don't worry about it. It's more similar to other things than you think. That's one of my pet hobbies.
2: Yes, that's, that's right. So the first article we published about two years ago in a journal called PNAS, it was the first article that analyzed the data from the Sachat Global History Data Bank that has been our sort of mm-hmm. big uh, project. And I come from uh, complexity science, I'm not a historian by training, but I was also shocked by how, not uniform, but how uh, many commonalities we observe in the uh, evolution of societies from very different parts of the world, from Rome and China, Egypt, uh, Hawaii, Peru, uh, Mesopotamia, and so on and so forth. Another success story is the opposite question. Okay, so we have a big puzzle is how large-scale complex societies evolved, But the second big puzzle is why do they periodically break down? And so this is the research that we have been involved over two decades. And we finally start getting very good questions. It turns out that the route to crisis is fairly standard. There are essentially three different components that are involved. Popular immiseration, the following living standards elite overproduction, too many uh, elite wannabes fighting for too few fixed number of positions, and the weakening of the state fiscally. So those three factors over and over again, ever since the complex, large-scale human societies have evolved 5,000 years ago, all of them across the world have been breaking down periodically every two, 300, 300 years, following the same uh, basic scenario with some, obviously, uh, variations, Right, but there is something very generic about this. In fact, now we find ourselves in the United States in a situation which is very similar in many respects to what historical societies have experienced before, given that our society is completely different from Roman society. Right, nevertheless, we still have elites and we still have popular immiseration, and all those factors are actually playing a big
0: role. I mean, traditional historians would probably have agreed with that, right? So are you, do you see yourselves as backing up, often uh, traditional historiography or turning on it its head? I mean, most people would say, yeah, if you look at the Mongol, Roman and Chinese history, so Tang dynasties and the Han giving way to the Sui and the Tang, it's kind of like conquest, dramatic climate change, famine, immiseration, incompetent leadership slash, you know, internecine in competition leading to collapse. I mean, that's something that I think lots of historians would recognise the difference you're doing is you're bringing in parallels from different parts of the world.
1: To me, the difference has always been the scale of the questions you're asking. And there's often a lot of agreement. And, and not only sort of some of these conclusions, as you talk about, but even the methods are often the same as, you know, a historian of medieval China and a historian of pharaonic Egypt are doing a lot of the same things. They're asking a lot of the same questions. They're answering the questions in the same way. Really, all we're doing, as you say, is taking that step back and putting it all together and say okay yes we see these patterns there's commonalities we are using these you know deep historical scholarship and these historical information so we're collaborating with historians at every step and you know we're just putting it together and say okay what are the actual underlying structural factors that seem to be driving these commonalities and why is it that we see these repeated patterns like what's the actual sort of underlying context. Um, and that's, I think that's that step that you don't normally get in most historical fields, but it's really, it, in my mind fits very comfortably with traditional history.
2: Well, first of all, I want to just stress very strongly that dynamics is not in opposition to history. In fact, leodynamics is impossible without history, because no matter how wonderful theories you have, they're worthless without data. And where does data come from? Of course, it is collected by the traditional historians. <laughs> so dynamics cannot exist without history. But dynamics can add to what historians do, because historians do propose general explanations. Every time you try to explain something, there is a general explanation, general theory lurking in the background. So let's go back to the Roman history, so everybody asks the question, why did the Roman Empire collapse? So That's one of the tropes, actually, in historical research. One German historian, Alexander Demont, he actually once set out to quantify how many theories have been proposed for the Roman collapse. He counted 230-some theories, and since then, more have been proposed. I mean, obviously, all those theories cannot be correct. And so it is a strange situation when theories are multiplying but there is no way to actually cut down on their number. And that's basically
0: our job. This is History Hit. You're hearing all about Clio Dynamics right here on the podcast. More coming up.
1: I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit... Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
0: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected, digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. Peter, also tell me more about Seishat, this project.
2: Seishat is the name of the Egyptian deity of writing and also of databases, strangely enough, because she is often depicted inscribing data on a papyrus leaf. And so about 10 years ago, several of us, including our Oxford colleagues, Harry Whitehouse, Peter François, and several and many others, we got together and decided that comparative history is the way to go. But comparative history, as it has been practiced at that point, has been limited because any individual scholar could only encompass so much data in their brains. So typically, comparative history is done by looking at two, maybe three, a few numbers. So there have been several comparative uh, histories of Rome to China or Mesopotamia to Egypt. So, what we wanted to do, we wanted to do comparative history on steroids. And the only way to do it is to actually involve computers in that, so the knowledge is deposited in them. And so that's how we decided that we should build this uh, data bank. But from the very beginning, we knew that the only way we could build this data bank was by collaborating with historians. So the Seshat project involves, at the latest count, nearly 100 historians, archaeologists, some other scholars of the past, like religion scholars and things like that. So we've been delving into this very difficult process of how we take historical knowledge and then transform it into the data that's useful for analysis. And maybe I'll let Dan actually speak about that part because he was very intimately involved in this process.
1: Yeah. And just to say again, that what attracted me to it as you know an historian and coming to this from sort of the opposite end that Peter did, by the end of my kind of dissertation in, in Roman history, I'm exploring the Roman Empire and trying to figure out why the empire was sort of so successful and why it started to crack up in the third century. And I started to ask broader questions like, oh, how unusual is this? What is unique about the circumstances of Rome in France and say the mid third century CE? are my answers that are very roman specific do they make any sense are there larger structural factors going on and that's what kind of brought me into the realm of seshad and what peter was doing and i when i sort of found out about the project i was like yeah this is this is for me this is fantastic you know as as we say so that i can explore okay well what is actually common and then pinpoint what is unique about each individual society may be interested in and so a lot of this is you know once i got involved with with the project it was as i say And as Peter documents, it's really recognizing the fact that there has been hundreds of years of just amazing, amazing historical research that has produced just a wealth of knowledge and and more knowledge than anyone could ever possibly comprehend, more knowledge than even a team of, of researchers could possibly comprehend or hold in their minds at any one time, which is, as Peter says, why you actually need computers. You need a computational power to recognize patterns from all the sort of noise and messiness of human cognition so that really the goal and all we're really trying to do is to say, okay, we have so much information, so much, much glorious material and data from all of these different societies. Let's put it together and see what we can do with it. And also being fairly committed to sort of open science. And we want, you know, not just what we can do with it, but we want to be a sort of resource collecting all this wisdom so that anyone else can come and ask their own questions of various sorts of scales.
0: So it turns out that the third century crisis in Rome was not so unusual. It's common to many of the great empires through history. You mentioned earlier, you start to bring things up to the present day, which I thought was very interesting, because reading your stuff, I'm quite struck by the fact that you tend to stop in the early modern period where other studies of data are better established. If, if I was a Ming dynasty bureaucrat, your information would be essentially important, okay? because I'd be able to predict with the coming of the Qing. Okay? But given that I'm not a Ming dynasty bureaucrat, say you're a Biden staffer incoming, What are the big lessons that you can draw that are useful today?
2: Well, first of all, remember, there are two sort of really major themes. One of them is how complex societies evolved. And the second one is why do they periodically go through breakdowns? So Seshat Data Bank was originally designed to address the question of the evolution of uh, complex societies. And since that started happening thousands of years ago and by 1800. Uh, We had very substantial complex societies. That's why we focused on that period. The last 200 years is not as significant when you look into the 5,000-year history of complex societies. But, of course, we also want to use our discipline to help us get out of uh, the predicaments that we get ourselves into, uh, uh, like what we are seeing today Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so we have started what we call the Crisis DB, Crisis Data Bank, that is actually codifying a suite of variables for all those historical cases we know about how societies go into the crisis. And equally important, how do they sail through it? How do they get out of it? In majority of cases, the results are not great. I mean, sometimes you have complete societal collapse. Almost invariably, you have some kind of political violence, civil wars, and things like that. But some societies do manage to get through all right? So the goal of Crisis DB is not only to further test our understanding how societies get into crisis, which as I said follows very standard trajectories, but then there's a whole fan of possible trajectories that opens up. And so how do we use that knowledge to help our own society? Unfortunately right now we don't have a very strong answer to it. We can offer some partial answers, so for example The fact that population well-being in in the United States has been declining, right? So this is both economic. eh? As we all know, the GDP per capita has been growing fairly well over the past several decades. But suddenly, the wages of workers in relation to GDP per capita stopped growing around 1970s. So uh, that has caused all kinds of problems, including something that I never expected to observe, and that's that we now have a Malthusian crisis. You have the life expectancy has been declining even before the COVID-19 crisis. Unimaginably to me, the average heights of several segments of American population has, um, have been declining, and that's a very strong direct biological indicator of decreasing well-being. So one of the big lessons from uh, from history and from this work to the incoming Biden administration is that you've got to reverse, you've got to get back popular well-being on track, so that the fruits of economic growth have to be equally divided. They don't uh, need to go only to the preferable one percent. They should go to uh, equitably to the whole population. How you accomplish this? This is a messy political process. is going to be very difficult. Obviously, especially given the current configuration, uh, political configuration in United States, that's your job. But but this is something that you have to start. You have to turn around this country and get the popular vote being back on track. Maybe Dan can add to that. I see him yeah. nodding.
1: I just want—I mean, this is this is very much—and you know, you take the lessons of the U.S. And, and to us, what is you know a little bit surprising, but also makes this so important is that what we're seeing in the U.S. and Canada, where I'm based, in the U.K. of course. Again, you know, the popular immiseration, the fragmentation, the polarization, the sort of vitriol among political parties and sort of our leaders in these different countries. All the sort of problems that people talk about a lot. These are so familiar to us who have been exploring these historical cases. And yeah, we concentrate on the pre-industrial period, but it's amazing how similar the events that are unfolding right now are to these historical moments. And so this is why to us, these lessons become so timely and so important. Even as you say to these incoming leaders, this sort of rising inequality, this lowering of well-being, somehow um, healing over these sort of political and partisan divides, see, just stand out as being the sine qua non of any sort of recovery out of these crises.
0: What are your judgments about the drivers of history? Like, sh- should we have been less worried about religious dissent? Is it is more like it's climate, it's food, it's troublesome nomadic peoples on your northern front? End. like what are the the monster lessons? that will determine the course of history that you guys have been able to draw from this project?
1: It's this sort of inequality and how, you know, inequality, not only economic, but in access and political um, gain and political power drives sort of well-being among the the general population down and leads to all sorts of infighting among elites. And that that stands out as time and time again as a destructive path to violence. You know, the, the sort of warfare between states is another thing that stands out as well as being a major driver. I don't want to get into that too much about sort of what to do with it. The the one thing I will say is that it's not that history repeats itself just because these are, you know, iron laws that are completely immutable. It's because there are common processes to how societies are structured and how we develop. But the fact that we can be aware of them, the fact that we can name them, at least gives the hope to me that there are some feedback mechanisms there. So simply being able to identify and name some of these key problems should mean that we are then able to avoid them in the future. And so, yes, you can have rising countries in jealousy, but that doesn't need to lead to a major warfare just because it did in Thucydides' time, for example.
0: I can hear the Roman Empire avoiding war with Persia. I can hear various Chinese dynasties agreeing with you about fighting foreign neighbours. And okay, so we avoid dramatic economic inequality. Peter, what are some of your gigantic lessons that we need to know now?
2: So inequality has been very much in the air. You know, the Davos uh, people um, have even named it as one of the uh, important problems to be solved. But to me, inequality is more of an indicator uh, rather than the direct uh, driver. So the direct drivers are is that the majority of population in the United States and several other Western European countries are losing ground. I mean, so that feeds into the inequality, but inequality is kind of an abstract thing. Well, more uh, direct thing is that uh, people are living less and they're living more poorly, the majority of people. So this is what we call in technical terms, popular immiseration. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, real problem. That's what uh, is fueling a lot of discontent And that has what propelled unlikely candidates like Donald Trump to the presidency in 2016. All right. And that's why amazing number of people voted for him. That's one of the big reasons why so many people voted for him, even in 2020. So the other side of inequality is that obviously all that extra um, GDP has to go somewhere. And where does it go? It goes to the top layers of the society, the 10%, the 1%, the 1% of 1%, especially, is doing very well. And that's troublesome also. I mean, if you think about the people getting wealthy, what's wrong with that? But the problem is when people get super wealthy, first of all, much of that wealth is actually, well, I'm not afraid of this word, word, is wasted on what we call conspicuous consumption. Getting your yacht to be, uh, you know, uh, two yards longer than the next yacht. Uh, Commentators have noted that that wealth, extreme wealth, and democracy don't go uh, comfortably well together. When you get uh, super wealthy people who become even more wealthy, they uh, use their wealth to influence the political process. And although not all of them are knaves, not all of them are selfish people. Some of them, some good patriotic uh, billionaires come to mind. But the majority does look out for number one, and as a result, what the government does. Is actually driven very much by the selfish interests uh, of the wealthy. And that uh, makes for even uh, worse a problem. Paradoxically, the more wealth, the more wealth goes to the top. That actually has another uh, little appreciated effect. So we call it elite overproduction. It's not just that 1% gets wealthier, it just it also is that 1% becomes first 2%, then 3%, then 4%. But there are only so many positions for which this elite aspirants, as we call them, can vie. So, you know, if you want to influence political process, you either run yourself as a president or you fund presidents, but there is only one presidential position, only 100 uh, Senate uh, seats. So increased number of aspirants for these positions drives much greater competition. And it starts uh, in this uh, competition... Uh, very soon goes beyond the healthy. Some competition is obviously necessary. You want to see, you know, better people get ahead of poor people. But when competition becomes super competition, then it starts to undermine the cooperative institutions that we have to channel the political process in uh, good directions. And we've seen that. The institutions governing our polity have been degrading and breaking uh, over the past, especially four years at a dramatic uh, pace. So this is, again, this is a general lesson. We see this happening in other societies over and over again. And so Mm -hmm. we are now experiencing it. So come to come back to what I started from, inequality needs to be unpacked into the actual mechanisms that create violence and state breakdown.
0: Well, I like it, guys. I like it. I'm interested in it. It sounds good. Let's uh, tell everyone about your book. What's the book called,
1: Dan? It's Figuring Out the Past. The 3,495 vital statistics that explain world history. It's everything you need to know.
0: Nice one. If you're thinking about setting up a giant land empire in Asia, you cannot do so without this book. Vital. Vital. If only the last song emperor had had this book by his side, he might have avoided his appalling fate. Gentlemen, thank you very much and good luck with your book. I thank you so much.
2: Thank you so
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds